Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather from Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. We do want a bipartisan bill. Ranking member, House Ag Committee, David Scott. We want to see our bipartisan priorities funded, but we need to continue the funding process. We in agriculture need more funding, but we need also to continue to work together to find that funding. Over the past 20 years, Bipartisan farm bills have succeeded when Republicans and Democratic leadership made the farm bill a priority and provided outside resources to the Agriculture Committee. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Mr. Secretary, I want to uh, thank you for joining us today. Representative G.T. Thompson is the chairman of the House Ag Committee. You're, quite frankly, the mastery of the tremendous width and breadth of the issues of agriculture, which is um, uh, the industry itself. It's so complex. Uh, there's so much there, and and I, you know, you're <coughs> to be uh, commended and appreciated for your mastery of that information. I think we we share the same goal um, that at the end of the day we want a highly effective farm bill. Uh, I think the case has been made for that. You've made the case for that. Uh, every member on this committee I talk with makes a, the case for that. Um, and, and I think we have worked together to achieve, uh, from a policy perspective, uh, that, uh, that end goal. Uh, where we, uh, where we disagree, perhaps, is quite frankly, we, we have to, we have to find a way to pay for it. Um, and so uh, it's uh, it's kind of a pipe dream to, um, and it'd be a shame the the good bipartisan work that we've done. I heard a number of times about quote the inability to pass a farm bill, um, and I just have to say that agriculture policy, the agriculture industry, takes teamwork, um, and we all need to be working as a team. Um, and quite frankly, there's uh, probably a lot of reasons why we haven't got got a farm bill done, let alone the the fact that this farm bill needs to pass uh, has to be uh, the Senate has to take action and reconcile. That's hanging out there, and I don't I don't know how soon they're going to be ready. Um, <coughs> but that said, you know we need we're still waiting on USDA technical assistance. We have at least a dozen uh, requests that have been submitted at least six months ago. Uh, we're still waiting on um, now, and we've gotten great technical assistance, but we still they're still pending. Uh, from USDA, and we need to have that technical assistance to make sure that we're on track with, with great policy, highly effective policy. Where uh, CBO has come along, but but uh, there still needs they still have their work that they need to complete. Um, and, and by law, we can't really proceed uh, without them. And then, quite frankly, we have a syndrome that's going on in this committee, and and I would say in all the and key and uh, uh, in the executive branch, we have funding denial. Um, and I'll come back to that. Uh, we, uh, for the record, this committee has not been idle. Each one of uh, each member here has been invited to the countryside to hear from the very people that we're <coughs> charged to represent. And I've been very appreciative and thankful for the bipartisan participation um, that we have done over the past uh, three years. Um, thousands of miles. Uh, 
meetings, roundtables, uh, visits on, as was illustrated today, on farms, seeing agriculture in action. Um, and that's how you build a great farm bill. You make it tripartisan. It's, it's Democrats, Republicans, and quite frankly, the industry. And those are the voices that we have brought to the table. Um, we've actively engaged uh, our members in a bipartisan way, have actually actively engaged in roundtables and discussions to build a bipartisan product uh, when it comes to policy. We've also heard uh, uh, today a lot of cherry-picked data points, and there's a lot of data out there to pick from. I get that. But attempts, <coughs> attempts to paint the farm economy as positive. Uh, the department's own analysis shows a very different story. And when you spend time with as many different farmers and ranchers, key stakeholders in rural America, it's a different story today. They're struggling. It's agriculture today. This is agriculture today. When we start to tie that back and start or forecasting from a price standpoint, and we start to look at fed cattle prices, we do need to start to think about the wholesale level. Mike Murphy with Cattle Facts at the recent Cattle Facts Outlook Seminar, part of CattleCon 24. Kevin talked about what we look at in terms of retail demand and seeing it from an academic standpoint that we're going to have a little bit of a softer tone at the retail level. That's also going to funnel down into the wholesale level as well. We are still going to see a higher average price for the cutout here in 2024 of about $3.00. As you can think about where we are here in the last 30 days, we've had a market that's been pretty strong as we've come through the month of January. Keep in mind, that was just a reflection of that big drop-off in production. This weather pattern that we had during January created some real chaos from an opportunity or an ability for the packer to get cattle harvested in kind of a timely fashion. At the same time, though, we've taken a lot of weights off the market as well. Looking at that cutout value of about $3, I think the key take-home message here is just a long-term trend. And that is a reflection of what Kevin mentioned from a demand standpoint. And we continue to see that build in here as we go into the course of the next few years, being able to sustain the, the strong demand that we've experienced the last few years. Obviously, it's going to be, in terms of a, a measurement of demand, a little bit tighter, a little bit softer, but still very, very strong, historically speaking. And that is, again, a reflection of that high-quality product. When you have a $3 cutout average of 57% leverage, that's going to give you about a 184 fed cattle average when you add in a $13 drop credit. Now, one thing to keep in mind about the drop credit, the old rule of thumb that we utilize, is that for every dollar change in the, the the drop credit is worth about $1 change in the Fed cattle market, whether we're going up or down. Currently, the drop credit's at about eleven seventy-five here through January, so it's a little bit below our $13 average that we've got forecast for the year. But this gives you kind of a foundation of what we expect to see for Fed cattle values here in 2024. Now, we're sitting in an environment this week where we had a big advancement in the Fed cattle market. Um, almost from a measure standpoint, last week the Kansas weighted average was a 174.21. We trade fed cattle at 179 in Kansas this week, so almost a $5 increase when it's all said and done with. We've had a big move in the market, and a lot of that's driven by some of the weather influence. How's that going to kind of play out as we start to look at the market from a perspective throughout the remainder of the year? If we step back over the course of the last few years, let's go back to 2020, the COVID year had a market that really went lower into the month of April. We had a wicked rally 
and then we came flushed it right back lower into a July 1 low. It wouldn't be defined as a seasonal year. 2021 and 2022 were a couple of years where we were slowly shifting that leverage and that margin away from the packing community back into the cattle feeder sector. And so you'd have those rallies into the spring, but you never had much of a correction into the summer market. Again, you wouldn't define those as seasonal years when you look at these charts. And then this last year had the big rally making our transition to the supply scenario that Kevin just talked through into the spring of, of uh, 23, making our highs in June, leveled the market off all the way through the summer and early fall before we broke and made our lows for you know the second half of the year in the month of December. Again, not what you define as more of a seasonal or traditional looking year. It's agriculture today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. We have had three of the strongest years in history on agricultural trade. Doug McCallop is Chief Ag Trade Negotiator with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office at the U.S. Grains Council's annual meeting. Something you may not have heard on your local news is that uh, over the course of just the last 12 months, 31 countries have uh, dropped barriers to trade, either tariff barriers or non-tariff barriers to trade. And that's something we need to build upon going forward in 2024. Um, I recognize the input costs have been a concern for many farmers. Uh, and another piece of news that you may not have gotten uh, from your local uh, recently is that uh, the administration worked to reduce the tariff on fertilizer coming out of Morocco. Uh, that duty had been at 20%, and uh, we've now gotten it into the single digits, and uh, certainly there's a lot of additional work to do there. Uh, we can't have success in places like Japan where we are able to uh, capture up to 100% of their uh, ethanol market but still have uh, input costs uh, up for farmers. We need to make sure that the bottom line for farmers is penciling out and that we've got uh, them in a successful position to succeed uh, going forward. Um, there certainly are a lot of headwinds uh, heading uh, to into 2024 on trade. Uh, the strong U.S. economy, the strong U.S. dollar, uh, many factors of the sort of hot U.S. economy we have right now uh, serve as a headwind for uh, exports for us and a bit of a tailwind for imports coming into the U.S. So it means that we need to double our efforts to keep uh, uh, the, the work uh, ongoing. There's certainly been a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the Farm Bill has not passed in Congress. There's really no clarity right now on when a Farm Bill might uh, get across the finish line. And as you all have heard, it seems like every month or two we've got talk about uh, government shutdowns and lapses on appropriations. So it has been really important. Uh, USDA has come forward with a re uh, regional uh, agriculture promotion program, or RAP. That is $1.2 billion uh, to work on ag promotion and export promotion. <clears throat> I know the folks in this room are spending a lot of time thinking about how they would like to capitalize on that, uh, but uh, I'm really, really pleased that U.S. Grains has been very proactive, and we're going to have a lot of uh, opportunities in the year to come uh, utilizing those resources and getting uh, access promotion and, and export uh, uh, outreach uh, going with those funding. So just appreciate all the work that you all are doing and the conversations that you're having on utilizing those, uh, those funds. <clears throat> Lastly, uh, trade missions. We have a full uh, slate of trade missions planned for 2024. Uh, I'll be in India in a little over a month from now uh, for that trade mission. <clears throat> India dropped tariffs on 10 agricultural commodities in 2023 through bilateral discussion, and those uh, tariffs have come down and in, in force, almost all of them have come into force already. So uh, that's been a really welcome thing, so we're going to have a trade mission to go along with that. Uh, I can't uh, thank enough the partnership we've had with USDA. 
The idea has been in areas where we are breaking down tariff barriers or market access that USDA strategically plans to have a trade mission in those same markets. It's kind of like, you know, making sure the tractor trailer is right behind the combine going down through the field and that as we uh, are able to open up new opportunities, we're there to harvest those and to set up deals uh, through those trade missions as well. So I'll stop there. I've, there's a long list. I could stand up here and go through every country uh, with you, and, uh, but I'd much uh, rather have a chance to do a dialogue and, and sit down and have a little bit of time uh, to exchange on various things that we're up to. But I want you all to know that it is an honor for me to serve in this capacity, to be an advocate on behalf of you. There's a lot to do. Uh, we're proud of the successes we've had, but we recognize that uh, we've got to double our efforts to make sure that we're successful out there. So thank you for the partnership. Thank you for being here and traveling uh, to places like Guatemala City. Again, it shows your commitment to ag trade, and uh, looking forward very much to working with you in the year to come to get even more successes on the ground. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. First of all, let me begin by indicating that the last three years of net cash farm income were record-setting. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack testifying before the House Ag Committee. The best three years in the last 50 years in this country. This year's income projected at just below historical norms will make it the best four years in recent history. It's also allowed for our farmers to have significant liquidity uh, as they deal with challenging times. Our rural unemployment uh, rate is now at a lowest rate in 35 years. Our rural employment has returned to pre-pandemic levels, uh, and the clean energy jobs are helping to lead the way. Rural poverty is down, and in fact, in 55 counties that historically were persistently poor are no longer in that category because of activities and work being done in those counties to improve economic opportunity. For the first time in 10 years, rural uh, populations have grown more people coming into rural America than leaving. Real wage growth in 2023 exceeds inflation by nearly 2%. And speaking of inflation and food inflation, it's headed down. Grocery store price inflation year over year is at 1.3%, the lowest it's been since 2021. And our Economic Research Service predicts that food at home prices will in fact decrease in 2024. I have several concerns that I want to share with the, with the committee. They have to do with the loss of farmers and farms, the loss of farm land, and the heavy concentration of farm income. In 1981, then-Secretary uh, uh, Bob Berglund raised concerns about the efforts and focus on production and its impact on the number of farms in this country. Since he raised that warning in 1981, we have lost 536,543 farms. We have lost over 165 million acres of farm land. Now, to give you a sense of how many farmers that is, that's every farmer today in South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, North uh, Nebraska, Colorado, and Oklahoma and Missouri. The farmland represents all the line mass of Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, and almost all of Virginia. Farm income has been extraordinarily concentrated. With the top 7% of farms, those who generate more than $500,000 in sales on an annual basis, over the last five years, getting 85% of the income, which meant that 93% of farms, nearly 2 million farms, had to share 15%. These are serious issues, and I think it's important for us to reset the notion that the only option in American agriculture is to get big or get out. It's time for us to do better for our small and mid-sized farming operations, those 93% that share 15% of income. 
that are surviving for the most part by taking a second job. I think we need to create for our farm families ways in which the farm, not the farmer, can create additional income. More new and better market opportunities and more income streams is a strategy that we are investing in at USDA. Climate-smart agriculture and forestry commodities providing a value-added opportunity as well as participation in ecosystem markets, a new income stream for farms. Sustainable aviation fuel and other bioproduct manufacturing from agricultural waste, creating another commodity opportunity. Renewable energy production, not only to lower costs, but also uh, to, persi- uh, to assist rural electric cooperatives as they transition from fossil fuel-based generation. New competitive meat and poultry markets with over 400 uh, investments already being made. And speaking of fertilizer, as you did in your comments, Mr. Sec- uh, Mr. Chairman, I need to tell you that in four states we are, in fact, producing more fertilizer. Uh, in Florida, Missouri, Alabama, and Montana. There are four of 40 projects that we've invested in, construction underway in the other 36, and there'll be more coming. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. We all have fresh in our memory the cattle cycle of 2014 and 15. Mike Murphy with Cattle Facts on cow-calf projections for 2024. And I'll just start off by saying this is a completely different cycle, and we're going to get into more detail on that in just a couple of minutes. Calves, though, for this year, we're going to average 290 on a U.S. annual average basis. We're going to get calves to about 325 this spring. You will pull back into the summer time frame. And then by fall, you can have some calves that could be as low as kind of 275 to 280 at those fall lows, which would be very similar to what we had this past year. Now, we are dealing with a smaller calf crop as we got the information confirmed with that here on Wednesday with the inventory report. The key things on some of these are going to be the number of heifers are going to be offered up as we look into uh, the influence that's going to have on the valuation of calves. And I would just say that's kind of the first thing that I would tell you that's a lot different about this cycle than the previous cycles. When we go back to that 2012 to 2014 time frame, we were already retaining heifers back at the ranch starting in 2012. And so by the time we got to 2014 and 2015, and we really started to suck those heifers back and keep them back at the ranch, you got that big upswing into the market. And that was what created that real impulsive market because we pulled them back. But it also created that bigger corrective move to the calf market as well as we got into more supply pretty quickly, compounded with the capacity challenge. That's not this cycle. With what we know today, we're going to be looking to add capacity at the slaughter level in the course of the next two to three years. We've got a plant at North Platte, Nebraska that will come on board here in about uh, 12 to 15 months. There's another project that uh, should be operational here in the next few years down there in the panhandle of Texas. So we're actually going to be adding more capacity. At the same time, we haven't even seen where we're pulling those heifers back at the ranching level. Now, we expect to find that over the course of the next few years, but right here in front of us, um, we're way different than the previous cycle. Again, as a reminder, 2012, we were already pulling those heifers back. We haven't even started that process. So when we start to think about that impact, the growth that you're seeing here, like on the calf crop into 2026, is very subtle. Most of that's going to be what we see in terms of mama cows being kind of captured back at the, uh, at the ranching level. 
So this is very positive. And why we're having this conversation is we're all trying to kind of sit there and we're balancing between what does the calf market look like, fresh in our memory from the cycle 10 years ago, and then with what Matt Macon shared with us a little bit earlier, we've got La Nina returning. And if you heard the key term that Matt shared with you is that historically La Ninas are what? Multiple years. Now, multiple might mean two, might mean three, hopefully not four, but we have to have that kind of in perspective as we start to look at the valuation of, does it make sense to try to own a few bread cows or not? The profitability is there. The economics say yes to do that. And I think when you take into consideration what should happen here over the next few years, Calf values as a percent of fed cattle values are going to improve. It's agriculture today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. If I want to just have a conference and and, and bring people to a conference and and, then wave the flag, um, it's very easy not to have a presence. You can just get a phone number and call them up and, and invite them to a conference. Kurt Schultz, Senior Director, Global Strategies with the U.S. Grains Council at their annual meeting in Guatemala City. But if you want to have a strategy to change what they're doing and you want to have uh, uh, something that's more complex, you need to be working in that market, understanding who your customers are, what both culturally, but also what economic uh, dynamics are influencing their purchasing strategies. And so um, that's that's vital. You cannot do that all from Washington, D.C. or from Des Moines, Iowa. You need to be on the ground talking daily with your customers. He also talks about U.S. corn in poultry diets. For years, 20-some years that I've been working with the council, one of the number one complaints about U.S. corn is the high level of broken kernels and foreign material that exists. And there's a lot of damage that we do in, in transporting and shipping our grain. Um, and, they, you know, it's natural for them to say, well, there's a lot of broken uh, corn. And my question to them was, well, you're going to grind it. You're actually going to take that corn and grind it. So how does it really perform? Um, you're making poultry feeds. Is there a problem with the poultry feeds? And they didn't really have a good answer, and I didn't have a good answer. And it's something that I had struggled with. And so when I came back to Washington, D.C., I understood after 11 years of going around talking to people about this that I needed to find a way to drill down and answer that question. So we actually went to the warehouses of our customers in the international market, got grain, U.S. corn that had been shipped to a country like Colombia, got Argentinian corn out of the same warehouse, got Brazilian corn, and shipped it back. So it's at the end of the export channel as damaged as it could be, as old. Sometimes U.S., we keep our corn a lot longer than our, than our competitors. We brought it back to the United States, five tons of each. Two years in a row we did this. We sent it to Auburn University, um, and they did uh, feeding trials with poultry. And what we found was that the, that the U.S. corn has a higher uh, available starch or energy value that is digestible. The, the, the amount is relatively the same for Argentina. It's about 72% starch in Argentinian, Brazilian, and U.S., but because they have a harder corn kernel and there's more protein matrix that binds up the starch, it's, the animal doesn't digest all of it. A lot of it passes through the animal. And so it, it's not a lot, but when you look at it from a feed conversion rate, it, it, it's a roughly about two cents a chicken difference for U.S. in advantage. Two cents doesn't sound like a lot, but when you grow millions of chickens, it's a lot. And so we did a study, and at the end of the study, um, and we use a 
uh, a poultry operation that has, uh, let's say, a million, 1.2 million chicks um, a cycle. They do seven cycles a year. Uh, that translates into, if they uh, choose not to buy U.S. corn, if it's Argentina, it's about $120,000 a year of profit they l- would have lost. If they had bought 100% U.S., they would have been $120,000 $120, more profitable. And in Brazilian, it would have been $160,000 more profitable. So really what it showed was that the animals grew faster. And you look at an individual animal, it's, it's microscopic. But when you look at it across an industry, which is a very competitive industry, it shows that despite all the disadvantages of, of uh, handling and, and, and broken kernels in U.S. corn, it's a, a better performing animal feed. And that's ultimately what you're doing. You're producing chickens. You're not producing corn when you're a poultry producer. So... What that allows me now to do is to go to large poultry operations internationally and show them what they could actually make by just simply switching the origin of their grain. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. To my friends on the other side of the aisle, unfortunately, your leadership has been hesitant to share with you how my proposed funding framework will actually help meet your priorities. For example, the number, your number one priority is to reduce hunger. I would agree. That's, that's incredibly important. Chairman of the House Ag Committee, G.T. Thompson. And the proposal, which I freely admit is a budget gimmick. I don't understand how CBO gets $30 billion out of, uh, out of this. Uh, but it allows us to provide SNAP to populations. We could actually expand SNAP to populations that for decades uh, have had limited or no access to SNAP. So we actually can increase access to people that have not been eligible for it. Um, and quite frankly, we maintain, once again, the cost of living adjustments, uh, which means we're not cutting benefits. Uh, there's no intent to cut benefits. Uh, I think that's exactly what reducing hunger means. 